The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome back one of my favorite guests, Mr. Mark Winnie. He is co-founder of a number of food and agriculture policy groups. He has been at the forefront of working for food and social justice. He was a member of the U.S. delegation to the 2000 World Conference on Food Security in Rome. He is a 2001 recipient of the U.S. Department of Agriculture Secretary's Plow Honor Award. And from 2002 until 2004, he was a Food and Society Policy Fellow, which is a position that's supported by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. He writes and speaks prolifically, and he consults extensively on community food system topics, and these include hunger and food security, local and regional agriculture, community food assessments, food policies. Since 2013, Mark has served as a senior advisor at the prestigious John Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, where he works on local and state food policy. So you might have read one of his essays or opinion pieces in Orion Magazine, In These Times, Sierra Magazine, Successful Farming, and so on. I really like reading his blogs at www.markwinnie.com, and all of his books are excellent. He is the author of Stand Together or Starve Alone, Unity and Chaos in the U.S. Food Movement, Closing the Food Gap, Resetting the Table in the Land of Plenty, and Food Rebels, Guerrilla Gardeners, and Smart Cookin' Mamas, Fighting Back in an Age of Industrial Agriculture. His latest book arrived on my desk, and I was enthusiastically ready to read it. It's titled Food Town USA, Seven Unlikely Cities That Are Changing the Way We Eat. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Melinda. Great to be here. Well, as I explained to you in some email communication before we decided on an interview date, I recently came back from a cross-country camping trip, and I found a little town in eastern Colorado, not unlike many of the towns that we drive through off the interstate, that are really decayed and dying. And I stopped in a little historical society museum, and I asked one of the women inside, what was keeping the economy going? And she said, well, we've got two prisons. And that is when I picked up your book and I said to myself, no, there's a better way we can do it through food. So tell me first, before we dive into these seven cities, how is it that you started your work in food justice? Oh boy, that goes back a long ways. The how was probably not as important as the why. And the how is that I started writing college, trying to raise money for a variety of food-related causes back then. That's way back then. That was famine relief in Africa. But I quickly became involved in trying to address food issues and a number of related concerns, particularly drug abuse among young people, a, a very poor socioeconomic situation in the community where I was working. And 
in all these cases, I think, and this is kind of where I get to the why, food was an entree point. It was sort of that gateway through which I could pass so that I could address some really complex issues like the one you just brought up from Colorado. That is very common, that we can use food as a way not just to feed ourselves, which of course is very important, but as a way to develop communities and build our own personal health, bring our communities together, build social capital, even address concerns like drug addiction, which I talk about in this new book. Mm-hmm. So the why is anyone can get started in food work, and that's one good thing to keep in mind. And the other is that food is a good place to start changing the world. Absolutely. And I don't know how many people see it as an economic driver. What has been your experience with that? It's a very interesting question and problem. As I say in my book, I've had many conversations with elected officials, particularly at the local level and also state levels, around the economic impact and the economic value of food. And for some reason, elected officials tend to take it for granted. They know food is just like it's there all the time in this country. It's cheap, cheaper than it should be, given some of the impacts that it has. And they don't regard it as something that is going to create jobs, businesses, all the things that mayors love to be able to take credit for. But when we point out and we do the numbers and we do the research and we show, well, look at how many people make some kind of living through their involvement in the food chain. What is the value of the food that is from the point that it's produced to the point that it goes through the various distribution points, preparation, processing, the grocery stores, the cafes, the brew pubs, the wineries that are all these things that are springing up everywhere you go. All of them are adding an incredible amount of economic value. Now, you don't necessarily see it. Walk into a coffee shop and you see a few people working there. But, you know, the chances are there's 10 or 15 other people working there as well. And they were not working there five years ago or 10 years ago because so many of these places are new. So the cumulative value of all your food activity, any given community, is significant. And I think that... We keep trying to convince our elected officials that they need to pay more attention to it, and thankfully, many of them are. So we're beginning to see some progress in that Mm -hmm. regard. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, you've got to have the ledger sheets out, and you've got to show the economic impact with these new developments. I don't know how often we do that. Like, you know, are we teaching this in business schools, traditional well, business schools? Yeah, we're, we're starting to. I mean, I think the idea of, of more community-based, more place-based economic development in any area at all is becoming more pronounced. Food is a good place to get started, but you'll find other examples as well. But I mean, just a couple of numbers. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has analyzed, as well as the Federal Reserve in St. Louis, uh, collaborated on a study about three years ago that found that the economic impact of locally produced food, people buying it, looking for it, etc., was about $400 million in the early 1990s. Today, it's about $20 billion. And that's just the production side, the growing side of, you know, from what you're doing with farmers markets and that kind of thing. But If you look at the bigger value of what I was talking about, the whole food chain of of small businesses that are owned by local people, small coffee shops, bakeries, farm-to-table restaurants, 
add in the value of what happens with farm to school programs and you begin to see a much bigger impact and we did a an analysis in Santa Fe, New Mexico where I live. It was something done by our food policy council and we found that in the city and county of 150,000 people you have an economic impact of almost a billion dollars from food, one billion dollars. If you take all of those, everything that has anything to do with food in your local economy into account. So these are the kinds of opportunities that I think we need to pay more attention to. Yeah, absolutely. And you also mentioned in your book, in looking at these seven cities, that you also build something through the food system called social capital. Yeah. And what a valuable resource to develop. Tell me what social capital is. Define it for our audience. Well, it's a term that's evolved out of sociology. Uh, Robert Putnam, a Harvard sociologist, made it popular, oh, going back almost 20 years with his very famous book called Bowling Alone. Right. And uh, really showed that so many things in our lives that we used to do in groups where the group or the team or the the neighbors, the neighborhood, do, doing them together, so much of that has disappeared. And that is sort of the, the loss of social capital. But it's not so much that what has been lost or gained is the impact has been that a lot of negative events fall out of the loss of social capital. If I don't have anybody to turn to for help in a situation, nobody I could borrow 10 bucks from. If there's nobody who can help me out when I need to get to a doctor and I can't drive or you know, a number of so many events, but also just our whole well-being gets wrapped up in our ability to exist as a group and to be able to draw on the help and the socialization and socializing that takes place with neighbors and friends. And so in food, we see this all the time. I mean, food is very important to building social capital. We often eat together. We prefer to eat together. None of us really like to eat alone. I've eaten alone a number of times, and I never enjoy it as much as I do when I'm eating with somebody or with friends. Dinner parties can be very simple affairs and just a way to bring people together. But it's also going beyond your own personal needs. Social capital means in a food system context that you're going to a farmer's market. What's more socializing, what's more people-oriented than a farmer's market? Do I get any of that satisfaction, any of that vibe by going to the traditional supermarket? No. I want to get in and out of that place as quickly as I can. A cafe, a brew pub, you know, experience all those things going to those places, and you see community in action. You see people enjoying each other. You see people having fun and and sitting there and acting as a group. And so much springs out of that. And I found it in the seven cities that I went to that the act of building a local food system brought people together. Sometimes it was at a very sort of project-specific level, but often it, it was around all these different projects beginning to band together and recognize that they had a common purpose, which was to increase the value and the quality and the affordability, in many cases, of their food system and to mm-hmm. make it more available and healthy and accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. And that was very much social capital is a really critical ingredient 
in all this work. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. At, at the end of your book, you talk about this sense of fullness that we get when we do have a strong sense of community. And you also talk about the opioid crisis and how many of the cities that you visited were dealing with the crisis. I mean, name a city that isn't really. And yet I wonder how much even having a cohesive local food system as not only an economic driver, but also developing the sense of fullness and community, the social capital, wouldn't help reduce opioid use. I certainly think it would. I think anything that connects people, I've, there's been a lot of research that's gone on to point, in short, where there is high degree of social capital, however one measures that, you find people more able to take care of themselves. They're better able to make use of services that are available that they will need. I think the opioid issue is an important one. It was a good example that I experienced in Portland, Maine, I went into a very large homeless shelter in Portland, which is also serving, I think it was about a couple of thousand meals a day through a number of programs. And they talked about how the opioid crisis in that part of Maine had increased almost exponentially. I mean, it was very scary, the number of people that were dying, in some cases, literally on the streets. And what they found is that they used their program and the act of feeding people to bring them in the door. They needed help. They, it wasn't just food. That was their immediate need. They needed somebody to sit down to and talk to. Right. And the counselors who were, in addition to feeding people, were talking to them about what their needs were, what was going on in their lives that they needed help addressing. And that often led to connections to other services. It also showed people care. Simple acts of compassion and listening were very important. And the most surprising thing that came out of this, and very interesting thing, was that at the time, the state of Maine had not been providing adequate funding for a number of programs that would help addicted people and other lower-income people who were in need of help and services. And the program, this homeless program called Preble Street, was actually organizing the people they were working with who were both addicted, homeless, hungry, organizing them to advocate for themselves. So they would actually go to the state legislature in Maine and talk about their problems and their issues and why and how they needed assistance. So food was where it started. Food was that place where we got you in the door, we help you out, help you get yourself together, but also get you to the point where you can advocate for your own needs. Exactly. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. Okay, we are halfway through, so I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Mark Winnie. He currently serves as Senior Advisor to the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. He writes, trains, and speaks about the food system. His latest book that we are going to dive into now is titled Food Town USA, Seven Unlikely Cities That Are Changing the Way We Eat. So, Mark, you have identified seven cities, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Alexandria, Louisiana, Boise, Idaho, Sitka, Alaska, Youngstown, Ohio, Jacksonville, Florida, and Portland, Maine, each with their own unique challenges and personalities. Why did you choose these specific cities? Well, there's not an easy answer, but basically I was looking for cities that were not on the so-called foodie radar, that were not well-known as food destinations. So that's why I stayed away from, say, Brooklyn and Boulder and 
Berkeley. Instead, I went to places like Boise and Bethlehem. So that was very, that my thesis here was that you know, that if something is good going on in the food world in these places, well, then that's that is that is saying very clearly that this is happening everywhere. That there has been this incredibly you know, productive and robust growth in our food systems at the local level all across the nation. It's not just unique to certain places. It it shouldn't be associated with just kind of an elitist pursuit of the East Coast and the West Coast. So that was really important. I was looking for regional diversity. I was looking for diversity in size. I was looking for diversity in terms of race and ethnicity. And in many cases, and this was very important, and if you're a writer and you're trying to write a book and you're doing the research, getting some help from local people to do this. And so I was fortunate to know a few people in each of these places and able to reach out to them or find somebody who knew somebody. And so my investigative process, my sleuthing process, if you will, was really important. To, you know, I needed people to help me find my way through these local food systems. So it was who I know, and it was that looking for diversity in the term, the mix of the cities, but also was wanting to find places that didn't have high food profiles. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, these are, as you describe, very different. Geographically, populations are different. But in terms of their success in using food as an economic driver, you do find that there are some common denominators. For example, these towns have farmers markets. When we are dealing with communities that are losing small farms, Sonny Perdue, recently head of USDA, spoke about how, well, I just don't know if small dairy farms are going to be able to survive. You know, we need to go to this industrial system. And of course, my jaw dropped because at the same time, I'm reading what he's saying, I'm reading your book, and I'm thinking, no, we need more of these local farms to feed the, these local food systems. So you see where I'm going here. It's like yeah. we want the farmer's markets. They all are successful because they have strong farmer's markets and access to local food. But at the same time, you've got this political system that doesn't do much to support the small local farmer. So what do we do? Well, you know, that's definitely a, the conundrum that we face right now. I mean, the, the thing that distinguished all the, or the united, let's say, all of these cities was that they all were pursuing local food, local farmers. It was very much an important part of what they were trying to accomplish. You know, one thing to keep in mind with all these places was that if you had been there 10 years ago, you wouldn't have seen any of these. You wouldn't have seen farmers markets. You wouldn't see cafes. You wouldn't see brew pups. Right. Um, all the things that I was seeing were pretty much getting underway 2008, 2009, 2010. So this stuff is relatively new. But there was a commitment. It was a, there was a commitment across all these communities to try to, to make sure that they were doing as much as they can to engage farmers and to bring them into the process, whether they're selling to restaurants or selling at a farmer's market or a farm-to-school program. In Sitka, Alaska, they were actually they had to create farmers. They didn't have land. <laughs> they didn't have farmers. They had to come up with some funding to actually create some good-sized market gardens so they had at least something, but they also engaged their fishermen. They actually had a, a fisherman, a fish to school program in mm -hmm. Sitka, Alaska. So salmon from the fishermen was going right into the local school system. 
So everybody was very keen on the role of producers. But there was a big challenge. There was an undercurrent of concern and stress that there were not enough farmers, that not enough young farmers in particular, that there were, you know, that the prices that people would pay were not quite where the farmer needed to be in order to make the kind of living that we would hope they could make, you know, a respectable middle-class lifestyle. So that was always a problem. I mean, one restaurateur in Boise, Idaho, told me that it, he, he used the term, it kills me every day to know what these farmers do to struggle to get by. And he was buying more locally produced food than anybody else, and that every farmer I talked to spoke with high regard for this restaurateur. So there was a bond in many cases between the buyers, between the you know, the chefs and the farmers, between the community and the farmers coming to the farmer's market, between the school officials and farms and, in one case, fishermen. So that bond, that strength was very important, but yet there was, there was definitely a concern over the future of farming. Or, and even in, in Sitka, there was even a concern over the future of fishing because of the impact of climate change. It was right. actually lowering the temperature of the oceans. And you were seeing all kinds of very unhealthy, unproductive variations in the fisheries in right. the uh, Gulf of Alaska. So a lot of concerns, even though the urge and the, the desire to localize your food system was incredibly strong. Mm -hmm. I like the way you spoke about how we always look at the top-down kind of policies, but you also write that it really just takes one person to join with a few others to really drive the change yeah. at the ground level. Yeah, I really, I, I mean, this was a, almost a little anathema for me, but the idea that the individual is so important, that the, that entrepreneurial spirit, not the entrepreneurial entrepreneur in the sort of a hard driving, you know, I'm going to come out on top and beat all the competition type entrepreneur. I found what I call community-supported entrepreneurs, you know, people who had the business skills, they had a vision, hardworking, and they wanted to start food businesses, but they also sought out the, the approval of the community. They wanted to be sanctioned, in other words, in their endeavors, and that would often pay off. But I also found it in the political leadership of most of the almost everywhere I went. You know, I was talking to city council people in those cities or other leaders in Alexandria, Louisiana. I was working uh, working with a group called the Central Louisiana Economic Development Alliance, known as CLEDA, which was doing traditional economic development in the, in a very poor region, but. Food was very much at the center of what they were doing. They had three full-time staff people dedicated to food system work as part of that economic development strategy. But, you know, people like Elaine Clegg, who was the president of the Boise City Council, who made food and sustainable development and open space and and good neighborhood planning that was oriented to food and food businesses, very much a, a central part of her work. So it was these individuals, political, social entrepreneurs, and the you know people developing great new nonprofit ventures, as well as the for-profit ventures with such as restaurants and cafes. You know those, these were the people; these were the spark. They were the ones that were making stuff happen 
but they weren't operating as sort of the Lone Ranger. They were you know, very much engaged with the community in the process of doing this work. And that was, that was like the big lesson for me, the big aha moment. Mm-hmm. And I thought the Boise story was especially interesting because here's Boise surrounded by individuals who are promoting industrial ag, which in my experience where I live, industrial agriculture isn't helping really anybody. It's more of an extractive process and leaving these exploited communities and damaged environments in their wake. And I've been to Idaho, I've driven through some of the countryside where there are lots of uh, confinement dairy operations that are just horrific in terms of destroying air quality. And then here you have Boise, that's taking a totally different tact, being extremely successful, and making people whole again. Yes, I mean it's it was uh, that was another striking feature of this the contrast between Boise which was really a very progressive city uh, surrounded you know you refer to it as a sea of red you know that Idaho has about 10% of 10 to 15% of their legislature is made up of democrats and the rest are republicans and and it's sometimes difficult to do something locally and even in a good sized city like Boise when you have a very conservative political environment that's pushing back at you. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that was part of my story. That's the part of the story I wanted to tell. I said, you know, this isn't all like where everybody's going to agree with you and think that this is like food, local food is the most beautiful and wonderful thing in the world and we're all going to do it. I found instead, you know, that here was a place, this island that wanted this kind of environment. They wanted a healthy food environment. Uh, they wanted to support local farmers, but at the same time, they were you know, existing in this, they kept referring to the, everything outside of the sort of the city limits as the bear. The bear was like crouching. The bear was out there and we had to keep the bear at bay and we couldn't poke the bear too much, meaning we couldn't insult it. We couldn't have, you know, we couldn't hold forth on the evils of the industrial food system. You know, we had to keep our head down and just keep doing the right thing mm-hmm. in their own way. In the you know, dealing with what they had in front of them and make something good out of it. That was what was very, very inspiring. I find your book to be incredibly inspiring, truly hopeful, moving forward into very urgent times. And Mark, we are out of time, but I would really like for you to come back and let us do a part two where we can dive more into some of the challenges that different cities faced. I know when I speak to people who are looking at even putting in some urban garden space, there is a concern about what happens with gentrification. And and you talk about that in the book. And I feel like with each of these cities, there are specific issues that we could dive a little bit further into and leave our listeners with even more hope. So would you mind coming back? I'd love to. You know that. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, in closing, I want to just remind our listeners that we have been speaking with Mark Winnie. He serves as a senior advisor to the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. He writes, trains, and speaks about the food system. He's a prolific and entertaining author. Mark, I have to tell you that so many of your books, I sit down and it's like, oh, this is, a, this is another page turner. Oh, so, I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> absolutely. And I want to make sure that everybody goes to your website. So it's www.markwinnie.com. 
read his blogs, and be totally impressed and hopeful for the future. So until we meet again, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank you, Mark, for being a wonderful author and for telling stories that inspire us. Thank you so much, Melinda. Really appreciate it. Thank you.